Download, bet, win. I got to tell you, I really like the sound of that. And with WinBet, it's just that easy. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport, WinBet has what you need to win. So if you're in Colorado or in Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, or right here in sweet Virginia, sign up today to receive a special offer, risk-free $500 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com. Download, bet, win. And let's get after it. Terms and conditions apply. Must be 21 or older and present in state where WinBet is available. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-270-7117. And it was one of those moments where it just dawned on me one day where, you know, I was like, I have enough money. I feel good about what I've accomplished. And I realized that I could walk away. Right. And it just dawned on me. And I was like, oh, scary. it was a scary thought, but, but it was empowering. Hello and welcome to my back porch in Northwest Montana. I am on vacation. This is a voice note. Uh, I'm not working right now, but the good news is I have a tremendous interview banked for you uh, with Ricky Williams, and you're about to hear it. Uh, But first, do you hear those crickets? It's like the perfect cricket volume. Back home right now, cicadas screaming. Nothing of the sort here. Just cool, dry air, quiet lapping of uh, lake water down the hill from me, and a bunch of big ass pine trees. And now I got to do this uh, voice note to uh, set the stage for a Ricky Williams conversation that I had about 10 days ago. I love Ricky Williams. Uh, I've been on his pod now, uh, and he's been on mine. He did not disappoint. You know, I think when when there's a folklore about somebody that builds, um, you know, in sports or in culture, like popular culture, you just hope that person seems authentic. And sure, he was authentic and as advertised on his podcast and in the podcast that you're about to hear. But what's really cool is I had a bunch of teammates that played with him that I had never really, like, asked their opinion of Ricky Williams. And lo and behold, reached out, texted, Pretty much all of them preparing to interview Ricky a couple weeks back had never seen Run Ricky Run, had never met him before. Um, his teammates all loved him to a man. Said he was great dude, as advertised, you know. And a few of them said you would love him, <laughs> and I figured I might. So uh, really fun conversation. We talked about a lot of stuff. Ricky, you know, he's just lived like five lifetimes, I feel like. And we talked about as much as we could. Hope to have him back again. Really cool dude. Fun to chop it up with. As I said, I'm up here in Northwest Montana. I'll be here for a little bit. Uh, Macon will be running point in studio. Studio J, I should call it. 
uh, the Flavor Station. He will be there for a lot of these pods, but a lot of these pods I'm going to fly solo. I'm going to record opens from my back porch here, and uh, I'm going to serve you killer interviews. And I got a couple lined up over the next month or so that I think you're really going to like. Some are out of left field. Not today, though. Good old football pod with a twist of life. Ricky Williams. I consistently trash the fuck out of this pod. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know why y'all like it. I think I said to Macon the other day, I was like, Macon went to see some fireworks. And uh, he texted me. I was like, dude, a lot of people listen to this pod because Macon hasn't been out in public in a year. And I go, that never really surprises me. It's just how many people listen to the pod and actually tell us unsolicited that they like it. Um, but I got a major lift this weekend. I had had a really rough 48 last week. You know, a lot going on. I was packing the family up, getting ready to go. I was behind. I hated our podcast the other day. It's tough when you don't have a guest. You know, I think sometimes you guys like that stuff, but not me. Uh, you listen to ourselves talk for 90 minutes. It sucks. I was wiped, and I didn't really like work when I got here and I kind of was like you know oftentimes you get on vacation you're like this feels good I could OD on this like I could absolutely just cut communication off with the outside world it's a romantic idea but here I am on my back porch podcasting 11 30 at night but I say that to say I run into a guy in Safeway here in uh in northwest Montana uh in Polson Montana I run into a guy in Safeway uh, shopping for groceries the first day, getting ready to stock, stock the fridge. And uh, I round the corner in, like, the vegetable aisle, and a dude's like, hey, man. And I'm like, ah, oh, it must be an old friend or something. So I, you know, stick out the the knucks to do a, you know, shoot a pound. Um, and I'm like, I, it'll come to me, whoever this guy is. And he's like, green light pod. And I'm like, you listen to the green light pod? And he said, yeah, I do, dude. And I said, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> You seem cool. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Guy named Hank. So shout out to Hank in Northwest Montana. Hank, I even ran into him uh, two hours over a little bit later. We said like four goodbyes because he's just such a cool guy. He listens to Green Light Pot. I was like, this is great. I run into him in the beer aisle and uh, I'm trying to figure out what kind of local fare uh, to sample. It's not like I haven't drank local beer here before, but you know, you, you like to mix it up. And Hank uh, and his friends were hospitable enough to uh, to point me in the direction of a few local beers that did not disappoint. And um, then I see this cat pulling out of the parking lot, and he's got a fucking river raft on the back of his truck. And I'm thinking, this guy's cool as hell. Likes rivers, likes green light pod. Uh, we have one thing in common. <laughs> uh, here's Ricky Williams. Y'all take care. And uh, I'll talk to you. Friday. So I got Ricky Williams here. I went on Ricky's pod last week. You guys have probably heard it by now because at this point, uh, if you're listening, it's July. Ricky, that was fun, man. Tell me a little, tell the people about your pod if they haven't heard about your pod yet. Yeah. So my podcast, uh, I call it Curious Questions with Ricky Williams and I bring astrology in. So I, I get my guest chart. I look at their chart and I make a list of questions that I, you know, that I'm curious about based on the chart and and we, we dive in. And so the idea was to introduce people to astrology, but in a way that's, that's real life, 
and getting you know my guest's reaction to certain astrological insights or ideas he's laughing he he thought at one point in the interview he was like yo you're, you're being sarcastic you're not i'm like dude i'm taking this dead seriously it's just some of the things that you were saying it was so and i i'm a skeptic in every way but like there were there were some things that were ringing true what were we i got the venus moon yeah you got venus you got venus in uh in aries yeah. And so we had some commonalities that we had. Moon, moon, moon and Gemini. Yeah, the Gemini moon. Gemini so. moon. Gemini moon. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on it. The only way I was, uh, and you told me like you can be a cross between the two because it's not as simple as like, hey, my birthday is X. So then I'm going to, you know, be able to read Y. Right. So very interesting. If you are walking around on this planet, you have a horoscope. And uh, you should probably check out Ricky's deal because it was a lot of fun, man. It was great. And all these years, man, like it's funny because and we talked a little bit about this last time we wrapped, but it was like I've watched you from a distance for a long time and just really respected the way that you've carried yourself off the field and like the autonomy with which that you've seemed to operate. I know it's never that simple, but in my mind, I'm like, this guy does what he wants and this guy follows his heart, which is a really hard thing for football players to do. And it was just cool connecting with you. I think in a lot of ways, you're, you were way ahead of your time. Do you look back at Ricky Williams wearing a helmet in the early 2000s for interviews, proving the point that you were trying to make and say, hey, I was really onto something even more than I knew? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. I, I say that to myself at least five times in a day. And I know from the outside, sometimes, you know, it looks like, a person does what he wants or they're ahead of their time, but I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I was just, I was just trying my best to survive. I think the biggest thing for me is I had so many uh, misconceptions about what the NFL was going to be like, you know, what my life was going to be like once I finally made it. And it was so different than what I imagined that I just, I was just, I was in a bad way trying to, trying to adjust. And you had the helmet on. Why? For the people who haven't heard the story. Yeah, so it it all started um it all started in the off season. You know, it all started in the first day of the first day of um started in the combine, but it all started the first day of training camp. I uh, we were in Lacrosse, Wisconsin and we landed landed in Lacrosse, got off the plane and there were a bunch of media standing there and they had this magazine cover of me with uh, Mike Ditka when I was wearing a wedding dress. And so already there was this tension between like the media, you know, having certain ideas of who I'm supposed to be as an athlete, but me having an idea that I thought once I made it to the NFL, it meant that I can finally be myself now. Right. But I was perceived as being weird or, or strange. And so I, I just didn't like that. And then first preseason game, I, I get a high ankle sprain. And so, you know, first round, the first round draft pick saints traded all these picks. It just, it was tough. And so it was one day in training camp after I uh, sprained my ankle and I wasn't practicing and it started to rain. And so I had my helmet on because it was raining. And then they, they, it was time for me to be interviewed. So they drove me in a cart to, to sit on a bench under this covered area. And as soon as I sat on the bench, someone yelled at me, take your helmet off. And I was like, I was like, you know, it was just like dehumanizing for me. I was like, I'm a human being. Like, let me sit down and get comfortable and then I'll take my helmet off. And so at first it started off as this act of rebellion. Like, like I'm a human being and I, you know, like I've earned the right to sit down and get comfortable before I take my helmet off. And then it turned into, and then it turned into a, a greater act of rebellion because 
I kept feeling like there was another time I was wearing my helmet and the, the reporter said, take off your helmet. And I said, why? Because I was really, that was my question. And she said, because we want to see your eyes. And I said, my visor is clear. You can see my eyes. You know, yeah. Trying to have a real conversation. And for me, the, the, the deeper point was the way I felt, at least, you want to see into my eyes, into my soul and ask me questions, but you don't even see me as a human being. So it was kind of this rebellion, but it was this protective mechanism, you know, that I'm not going to give away my identity and what's important to me to you just because... I'll get fined if I don't talk to you. The irony of all that, I don't even know if I'm using the word irony correctly at times, but is that you're sitting here 10,000 yard back, so many amazing football achievements and anybody who I talked to that played against you or with you is like amazing football player, okay? We all know that, but the reason people love you so much is because of who you are off the field outside of that helmet. So do you feel like you won? Because in a lot of ways, like, again, the whole ahead of your time theme is like, you were the modern athlete trying to fit, in my opinion, and a hell of a unique modern athlete at that, but you were trying to fit a, a you know, a, a square peg in a round hole is like, they just weren't ready for that. You know, the pushback, like from us, you know what I mean? And you push back. Yeah, again, I mean, I, I, I was just was trying to survive. And I, you know, I went through this big identity crisis. I mean, I, I was this big article about me uh, struggling with social anxiety disorder because right. I was miserable. I remember every day walking into the locker room, just feeling like, oh, another, once we got on the field, I was great. You know, yeah. just everybody shuts up and it's, it's really about, okay, like who's here to ball, but all the other stuff, it was, it was a lot. It's a jarring place to walk into no matter where you've been in life. And like, no matter what your upbringing was, you know, like an NFL locker room, especially in the old NFL, where you walk in and there's a bunch of like grown men. It's not like guys walking in now. And like when I was in St. Louis, I used to joke that like at the end of my career there, year eight, I had the best parking spot. And that means that I was like the oldest guy. I'm 30 years old. Like there were 15, 30 year olds when we got in the league. You know what I mean? And so it's intimidating if you're not doing it right. You try to fit who you're supposed to be to like meet that expectation. Exactly. And I, I started to like unconsciously go down that go down that path and I lost myself. And luckily I got some help and you know started to to find to find myself. I do in a second want to go back to how you got to New Orleans because it was such a unique football condition, like or situation that 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 landed you there. But like Ricky Williams now, okay, removed from the game. You look happy, you, you seem happy, and happiness is fleeting, and it's like a battle your whole life, I feel like my whole life, it's like, how do I find balance? How do I, how do I achieve happiness? How do I get to this destination? And the destination's never coming, I guess, is the, is the sick joke. <laughs> but like, do you feel like you've arrived somewhere at all, or is it never about an arrival? Are you comfortable and happy in your life today? I think it's both. I don't think you I don't think you arrive at the destination, but I think you can arrive on your path. And I think I've arrived on my path, meaning, you know, I, I feel like pretty much everything I do is meaningful, you know. And so it's regardless, you know, I don't even think of like a good day or a bad day because it's, you know, it's that feeling that, you know, after 35 carries, my body hurts, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm limping, but we won. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's worth it. And, and, and that's what I got used to as a football player. And I think I've been able to bring that over into my life that I wake up every morning and everything I do, it feels like it's worth it. 
when it comes to that, the path you're on, not the destination, the path, where does football fit into that path? Where does looking backwards fit into that path? Because I think we really struggle, like how proud am I supposed to be of my accomplishments? How do I look back in a healthy way? You know, like how do I look back and be proud without like staying back there? Part of me, you know, and you do some football stuff I read. So how do you maintain that distance that I'm sure you think is probably healthy? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So I think, I think in general, you know, I think I'm in midlife now. So I think in general, when I look back, I can, I can appreciate that everything that's happened in the past has prepared me for what I'm doing right now. And, and I think accomplishments are tricky. I think accomplishments bolster your ego enough to get to this point. But I think now that I'm at this point, I, the accomplishments don't mean as much, but the training, right? All I realized that me being becoming a football player, me going through all of that stuff right. was just preparation for 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 what what's next. Um, and and that's where I find that's where I find peace with it. And that was an interesting thing that came up for you and me, like expectations when we were talking on your podcast. How many guys have ever turned down the NFL? How many, you know, I can't speak for people outside our sport, but it's like when they come calling, we just answer. Like, I'm ready to give you, if I can give you 15, I'll give you 15 years. That's yeah. whatever. When I got in the league and you talk to guys around you, are like, what are your goals? I want to play 15 years in the NFL. Call me weird, but I never had that goal. You know what I mean? Like my goal was to be excellent at what I was doing, anything I was doing, competitive, excellent. Like if you meet a teammate, they probably wouldn't tell you anybody wouldn't win more than me, but I didn't plan on being a lifer, nor did I, did I need it for my identity. And I think that's a tricky thing is just because you're great at something, society tells you you have to do that and you have to live that 24 seven. There are other things you're great at. They're just telling you that the, you're great at a popular thing. You know yes. what I mean? See, I, I look at it, there's there's two kinds of greatness. You know, there's that greatness that comes from more from your natural talent where you're great at it, but you don't really grow as yeah. much. And then those those things that you're great at where you're just learning and you just have this passion where as you become better, there's there's growth. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, football is one of those things that the athletic part, you know, I'm, I'm an explosive person. So I, I had that natural ability where I could grow was just understanding the game, you know, and, and really using my mind to to analyze how to read the power play, you know, right. and, you know and, you which know, they don't run anymore. Right. We're, when we're playing, you know, we're playing this defensive end. He likes the wrong shoulder, yeah. you know, uh-huh. right. So maybe I might pop it out, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. He low plays it. So I know the fullback will, will kick him and I can yep. get up inside, of it, you know, like just analyzing the game. But I got to a point where, you can only run power against so many defenses where I just wasn't mentally challenged anymore. Right. And, and although, you know, on the outside, everything was great with football, just internally, I felt like there were so many other things that I wanted to, to do and parts of myself that I wanted to develop more. But, and, and it was one of those moments where it just dawned on me one day where, you know, I was like, I have enough money. I feel good about what I've accomplished. And I realized that I could walk away. Right. And it just dawned on me. And I was like, Oh, scary! It was a scary thought, but but it was empowering. That is the scary. the The scary part is the key word because for so many years when I played, I was afraid of retirement. Like I was just downright afraid of it. I wanted it so badly. I wanted life outside of football. And I think people also can't. People have a hard time holding two thoughts in their head that they think are opposing thoughts, but they're not at all. That I could love every minute of playing the game Sunday and bust my ass 
but want so badly to experience something else. And I had this just sinking FOMO a lot of times. And I said this to you on your podcast. The first time I saw Run Ricky Run was the last couple of days getting ready to interview you. And I was like, get off my corner, man. Like you're on my fucking corner. This is, I wanted, I wanted to go join the Peace Corps. Like I was jealous of people that took a year off after college. Like I just had this like almost toxic jealousy festering under all that like, hey, I'm on top of the world. I play in front of 60,000 people. How about this hit of drugs I'm getting? Like this is just pure adrenaline and I wanna win so badly. There was this really like, there was this unrest in my life. And I don't know if I was too cowardly to do it, but you did the thing that I think a lot of guys actually think hard about doing in their heart of hearts, but they, they, they're, they're afraid to say it out loud because then people will question your commitment to the game. Yeah. You know what I you mean? Know, the, the truth is when, when I left, I thought I was leaving for good, but it ended up, I was gone for a year. And I think it, it would be beneficial for guys, especially when they're getting to that point of burnout, to take a year off, yeah, you know, and I think a lot of guys, you know, had the opportunity this past year to opt out with, you know, without a, you know, a, a penalty. So I think it's a good <laughs> idea because I think when you when you start, you know, like me, I started in seventh grade and went all the way through until my mid twenties. I didn't have a fall, and so all that FOMO of all the cool stuff that people got to do from Dude. The summer all the way until Christmas. What is August like? <laughs> right? Yo, until I retired, I was like, "What is that month?" <laughs> like it's just when you say August, I just think about those little uh, the water carts and like you know oh. being sore and bruises being on sore, my forehead it. and that's it, yeah. and the, the holiday. The yeah. The burn mark on the forehead. Yeah. When we had the old styrofoam, the asbestos helmets, well, if you cut that helmet open, it'd be yellow inside. Now the guy's yeah. got these gel helmets and shit. They feel heavenly on your head. Yes. But that's what August was. And then the fall, like people used to be like, oh, I love the fall. Uh, you know, not that I uh, drink coffee or that I'd like a pumpkin spice latte or anything, but people freak out over red leaves and shit. For 11 years, I hated the fall. Not because I hated football, because I associated with this grind that was so hard for people to, to fathom. Yes. And then when you go away from it, it's really hard, which is one of the most interesting things about your break. When I retired for the first time and I trained to come back one time, it didn't work out. I realized it was gonna be damn near impossible to get back on this horse mentally because once you're out, it's really hard. You realize the further you get away, how fucked up that life is, right? And I don't know how you did that. You went away for a year and then decided to come back. Like that's the thing to me that's, it, what's amazing is you having the balls to walk away, but what's even more amazing is you being like, oh, I think I'll come back to that super yeah. fucked up scene that made me miserable at times. Yeah, I mean, I, I got super zen and that, that year away. And so I came back with like, a, it's a totally different attitude. And it was a completely different experience for me, you know, and uh, it, it was, it was fascinating. I'm glad I, I'm glad I did it. But but the second retirement, I could feel it really quick. You know, further I further I got away, I I, I just I started watching football games, and I was like, ooh, like, <laughs> yeah, dude. How about when you you? I heard okay, I heard you were a cameraman on the field. Yep, yep, sure was. How'd you get that opportunity? How did that idea pop into your head? Uh, ESPN, the magazine, they do a, a photo issue every year. And I guess they, they knew I was into photography. So they reached out and asked if I wanted to shoot the Super Bowl. And it was, it was interesting because it was a year after I retired and the team that I retired from the Ravens were playing in the Super Bowl. And it was in new Orleans where I started my career. So as I walked into the stadium that, that afternoon, 
um, same people that worked at the stadium when I played for the Saints were there. And so it was this really interesting way to, to end, kind of yeah. walk away from the game, you know, the same place I, I walked into the NFL. Where were you when the lights turned out? Uh, I was, uh, I was in the, um, I was in the, the North end zone, uh, sitting down. It's, it's really difficult to shoot, to shoot football because you have to, you have to anticipate where the play is going to be yeah. and you have to be in focus. And so it was a challenge. I got a couple good shots, but it was, it was tough. Were other photographers like trying to strike up conversations with you and ask questions? Because that's actually interesting. You put it that way. It's like, you got to know where the, the game is going to be. And you, as soon as the ball snapped, you have a good idea based on like what the guards doing is yeah. this runner pass, you know what I mean? And these camera folk, I mean, like as hard as they work and they master that camera, you have a different mastery. It's weird though. Like they get, they have a knack, even though they don't know football, they just have a knack for where the, for like angles and where the ball is going to be. Like I was impressed. I was asking them questions about like, how, how do you guys know this stuff? Cause yeah. it's a lot to process, you know? And, and then they're, you know, especially the Super Bowl, everyone's competitive for the, like for, <laughs> for the right, the right, uh, real estate the right location on the field but it was a it was a really fun experience i remember the first time i was hurt in ir and i went to watch the first game that i was in street clothes it was eight years into my career and i was standing there on the sideline and i watched one of the hardest hits i've ever seen and i don't know how normal that would have looked to me if i was on the field you know what i mean you, you got to be away from it to realize how violent it is and, and I, I just figure you, I, when I read that, I was so interested to hear, you know, kind of your takeaways from seeing the game up close like that. It was just wild. I want to go backwards to, you know, you getting in the league to set up this year away because it was so interesting to me. And again, I, I watched Run Ricky run for the first time a, a week ago. You come in the league in New Orleans in a totally unprecedented fact, fashion. I mean, you're already a legend, right? You play at the biggest legendary school. You're playing a legendary position. It's a legendary state. Like just the, the the elevation of like what football means in Texas is incredible to me and you're like the president when it comes to football in Texas for a period there so they gave up an entire draft to land you in New Orleans and I just wonder how much differently your relationship with football might be had they not put you under such an unfair you know spotlight immediately like if you got drafted in the bottom of the first round on a winner and they didn't give up a whole haul to get you, would you feel any differently about ball your first couple of years? Of course, of course. You know, even even if I would have been drafted a, a pick earlier by the Colts, you know, yeah. and and gone and played with Peyton Manning. And, you know, my big thing is that I, I, I put so much pressure on myself. I, I don't necessarily perceive it from, from the outside. For me, it, it was really, you know, the people I had around me. And I think, and that's kind of my my whole career. And to me, and the game has changed, thank goodness, that they realize you can have talent, but it works better if you put multiple guys with talent around. Yeah. You know, when you in in you know in New Orleans and in Miami, it's like we played defense and then offense. We they just gave me the ball, uh, and so you know I didn't I didn't have an opportunity to play with really an elite an elite quarterback. I played with some pretty good quarterbacks, but I didn't have the opportunity to play with an elite quarterback. Later in my career, I split time with Ronnie Brown and, and I had a blast. Yeah. You know, I felt like I was more productive. It was easier on my body and we were, we were winning. And, and so I, as the game evolved, you know, my game had to evolve from being the, the workhorse 
um, to being just being more effective. Yeah, it, it feels like your entire career, you were just being asked a lot and like at a position where they asked too much of guys anyways. I mean, like from, hey, you got to live up to this. Like we're going to we're going to mortgage the whole future of the franchise for one player, which no matter who it is, I always tell people it's so funny when you're evaluating draft picks. Like you have to consider the context and people just don't do it. But then to Miami where Wanstead is giving you the ball like 40 times a game. Was there ever a point where you and Dave had to have a heart to heart about like, hey man, like you're killing me right now? It's funny, we didn't have that heart to heart until two years ago, the Super Bowl in Miami. We were at an event together and we finally we finally had that heart to heart because the last time I talked to Dave before this was when I called him up and told him I was retiring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, that didn't go too well for him. But, um, but, but we had that heart to heart. And he said, you know, the one thing that I learned was that I, I, you know, I need to trust the quarterback. Do you think the days of workhorse running backs are like, are over or can certain guys can like, you watch Derrick Henry, are you waiting for the bottom to fall out? Not that you're rooting for that, but every year I'm like, he can't possibly do this again. Well, he's still young. So I think, you know, if he can, as he goes on, I think if they can split, find another back where he can split time, right. I think that that can extend the quality of his of his career. You know, I'd look like a you know one of my best friends, Earl Campbell. You know, in the Hall of Fame, but you know only only made it seven years in the NFL. But it was a he dominated, oh, dominated, yeah. dominated for those years. And so, you know, and for me, I was going and I was moving in that same direction until I retired and I came back and you know the main reason was because no one could trust me, <laughs> Right. but I, I was splitting time. But again, I was, was making the same amount of money I was making when I was carrying ball. It was taking better care of my body and I was happier. So it, it worked out for me. With Earl Campbell's physical health. I mean, like it's well-documented. I mean, when I think of running backs that just gave it all and you could really, like, people talk about kind of how beat up he is and him being as tight as he is to you. Did that, ever place like did you, I, no one plays scared okay you can't play scared but you can have fear like a healthy fear of what's 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 this going to look like physically for me down the line yeah. especially you knowing know. people me i knew my dad you yeah. got a buddy like earl campbell like it's got to be in the back of your head yeah. i don't even think it's fear i think it's reality and yeah. i think you know part of being young and part of what we do is we we kind of have to live in non-reality you know, and so it, it, it's, it's funny you bring it up because the year I decided to walk away from the game, I was I was talking to the Dolphins about renegotiating my contract because I was I, I, the previous year I led the NFL in carries, separated both my shoulders, and I was just beat up. And so I started to realize I'm not going to be able to do this forever. Yeah. You know, the reality of I need to take care of myself and feel good about what I'm putting my body through for me to keep doing this. And then the Dolphins came back with the, you know, what I felt was a insulting um, offer. And so I started to realize, okay, if they're not going to take care of me, I have to start learning to take care of myself. And that my whole thinking started to change. Yeah. It's like, it's the ultimate team sport, but if you could give a young player any advice, it might be look out for number one because nobody else is going to look out for you. And that's the hardest part as a selfless person to be a part of a team, but also look out for yourself. And like the guilt, like I, I heard you talk about this or like your rookie year when you had your ankle injury, it was so quick and you feel the pressure of, you know, what's been bestowed upon you and you're crying in the locker room 
Yeah. Like you can't tell me that person doesn't care. Yeah. But that person also needs to 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 look out for themselves too. And it's the disappointment when you get hurt. The first thing you do is you all of a sudden, like when I got hurt, I I walked around the locker room. I walked into the building and I'm a captain and like I'm one of the most popular guys on the team unless people secretly hated me. You see it in people's eyes and you start like almost out of self-consciousness or like you think they're looking at you like you're just a coward. And I think that's the biggest cultural mind fuck of trying to take care of yourself in the NFL. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, it was funny. The advice, the advice I got before I got into the NFL from uh, Ironhead Hayward, he said, he said, if you're hurt, don't play. Right. He said, because you might be 65%, but they're going to look at you and always expect 100%. And when he said it, I was like, I will never take that advice. <laughs> exactly. But, but I get it. But I get it. I, I, under, I understand. I understand what he means. It's, it's true. You know, and I, and I say the toughest, the toughest part, in my opinion, of playing in the NFL is dealing with injuries. Because there's this, this where you always have this question of, can I play? Right. Right. Can I play? And if you think about it, these are guys that are paid a lot of money to train and are really good athletes. And I'm going out there at 70%, you know, <laughs> somehow the adrenaline helps us get through it. But it's, it, it's to me, that's the most stressful thing about, about the NFL is like, can I, when you're hurt and you're trying to figure out, can I, can I play? Because nobody tells you what you can and can't do. Like they take advantage of very naturally your drive to be like accountable to your teammates and to play through stuff. You know exactly what I mean. You're smiling because it's true. Yeah. Fucking, you like the worst thing is when they ask you like, what do you think you can do? Like, that's not my job. My job is to, to go until failure. It's your job as trainers and as coaches to protect me. Like ideally, you know, like you tell me where the point of diminishing return is on me playing. You're the expert. But when they put it back in your hands, like, of course, you're always going to play. Yeah. You know, I have an interesting story about this. And I, I tell this story a lot in when I'm talking to people about astrology because there's an astrological course. I love it, dude. I'm in, bro. Let's, yeah. let's talk about but, it, Ricky. Yeah. So so in astrology, the planet Mars, okay? The planet Mars has to do with courage. Yeah. Courage. Okay. And so when a, when Mars is triggering something in our chart, we, we have to face a fear, okay? Or something's going to happen to us. Right. That, that's, that's the story. So it, this was 2000 and... Uh, 2007, 2007, and I'd been I was suspended for a year, and then I failed the drug test to get back in, and so my suspension was like a year and a half, and so I was reinstated week ten, okay, week ten of 2007, and at this time the Dolphins were zero and zero and ten, okay, zero and nine, zero and nine, hadn't won a game. I came back, practiced for a week, and we were going to play the Steelers on Monday night, okay. And so, of course, I was like, finally, you know, a year and a half away, I'm finally back. You know, you know, I, pra I practice, um, got a lot of reps that week and I was ready to go. And so we fly into Pittsburgh and it's pouring down rain, pouring down rain. OK, so we we go to the hotel the whole next day. It rains. Right. We go to the field and there's like two inches of water sitting on the field. There's, it's the, the field's so bad that we can't even warm up. That feels and bad so anyways. Yeah. I, and so there, this voice is telling me. You know, I don't think it's a good idea that 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 you play today because these guys have been in training camp in 10 weeks. I practiced for a week after a year and a half off. And this these this field is the crap. So I, you know, and so I, I told myself, okay, I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna tell Cam that I'm not I, I'm not gonna play. Mm -hmm. You know. And so I walk in the locker room and I go up to him. He's like, you know, 
how you doing? How, how you feel? Right? And I chickened out. <laughs> I chickened out. You know, I said, I, I said, I'm ready to go. Okay. And then, you know, for like the first play of the second quarter, we run, you know, a little trap. Uh, James Harrison comes off, like hits me, you know, ball pops out and, I, and I'm on the ground and I'm pushing myself up to, to go after the ball. And uh, Lawrence Timmons steps on my back and uh, tears my, my, my pec right off my, right off my humerus bone. And, uh, and I had surgery the next day and missed the rest of this, but I knew, right. I knew, but I, and I, but I chickened out. I wasn't courageous enough to tell him I, I'm not going to play. And sometimes I think taking care of yourself requires courage. I remember that was one of the most bizarre, unlucky ways to get hurt coming back week 10. I mean, I, I remember the play. Yeah. I mean, it's just like my brother came back and just got hurt in OTAs and he's out for a while and he had surgery. And it's like all that hard work that it takes to get back on the horse for just for that to happen. I mean, it's just got to been crushing. Yeah. But I think, I think though, there's, there's a wisdom, there's a wisdom that we can, we can play a brutal sport like this, or we can do things that are intense. And if we listen to that inner guidance, I think we can, we can stay safe, but what overrides that, you know, are these ideas about, you know, team first, but I think in order to do team first, you got to be whole. And masculinity, like, Hey, you know, the thing about our game is it's not only pressure packed, I don't want to pigeonhole like the NBA, which is a, it's a, it's a tough sport. Like it's physical and that sort of thing. But the first thing you think about is if somebody's not good at it, they're not a wimp. They're not like less of a man. They just don't have a good jump shot or like, you know what I mean? Like if you're not good at football, there's almost like a mass masculinity thing that's tied up to it. So I, I just think the whole thing, it's interesting. You illustrate that the bravest thing you could have done would have been to face Camp Cameron and be like, "Hey, Coach, I'm sorry, and I know yeah. you're disappointed. I know you're disappointed with me, but look at that field, dude. It's week ten. These guys have been out here just like, and I know exactly what you mean. But that that's interesting because you say facing fears. Ricky Williams at 44. What what are you afraid of? Uh, honestly, the only thing that really scares me is that sometimes my wife gets in a bad mood that she's not come on out. man you're not you got nothing like sharks snakes dying getting hit by lightning no 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 I, i'm honestly you're past that well well it, to, to the point of like if i'm afraid i'm just not gonna be around sharks or snakes right like, okay you know? <laughs> and if i am then i'm like okay i guess i'm supposed to be here and i'll just go with it <laughs> that's an amazing way of going through with it it's an amazing way of going through with it. Okay, so so you're the only rookie in New Orleans, which had to be weird because you're dealing with all the stresses that we just talked about, and you're at the lunch table. There's nobody to talk to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're the only yeah. rookie. Yeah, it was it was rough because again, we had a veteran team, so there's a lot of grown ass men in there, and I walked in, you know, making just as much money as as them and getting all the attention. And so, I, I you know, I think that's how it should be. You know, they were like, okay you know, prove it to me. And I think the way I worked out, the way I trained, I proved it to him, but the season started, I was hurt. And then I was trying to prove it to him by playing with the dislocated elbow and playing yeah. with the high ankle sprain, you know, until that first season, I, I managed to, I, I like fought through like these difficult injuries and I got to week 10 and without missing a game. And then I had a turf toe and I ended up missing four games. So it was, it just was a, a dealing with injuries. I, like I said, the most stressful part of the game and up until that point through college, you know, I had bumps and bruises, but nothing I couldn't play through. Fast forward in 2004, you, you, uh, we've talked about, and everybody knows your time away from football the first time. 
you make that decision right before training camp. You talk about another thing that took courage to really, I mean, I, I can remember year 10, I was close to retiring physicals day. Like I was in line for physicals <laughs> and I, in my head was like, yo, fuck this. No, it was year 11. <laughs> it was my last year. And I just remember thinking like, this is the last place I want to be on the planet, dude, like on the planet. And I was too afraid, you know, like I was too afraid to just be like, Hey, walk out of the building. Cause that's what I want to do. You did it in the prime of your career. Who was the first person you told and what was their reaction? So if I'm being honest, I was, a, I was a coward too. So here's, here's how it went down. So I was, um, it was Memorial day weekend and, and I was, I lived in South Beach. I had a place in South Beach. I had a place in Fort Lauderdale. And I was driving and I was walking downstairs in my place in South Beach. And my concierge always used to bug me to go to parties. And I was in a good mood that day. And so I said, when's the next party? And he looked at me and he said, ah, he said, it's Memorial Day weekend. All the parties are over in Miami. It's too hot. So you got to have to wait until November. And he said, the season is over. Okay. And I started thinking the season is over. Right. And I was thinking about my career and, and how my attitude towards football was changing and it was kind of scaring me and I started thinking is the season of football for me is it coming to an end and I was thinking you know when the seasons change in nature it's natural right they don't they don't fuss or or, or fight it just happens naturally and I said okay what if I'm just shifting into a different phase of my life and with that thought I had this sense of like lightness and expansion and a kind of excitement and then I had this like this scary thought that said like, well, what about your career? And what about your fame? And what about all the money and the houses and all that stuff? And as I sat with it, I realized I don't care about those things. And it kind of shocked me a little bit like, uh, okay, now what do I do now? And then I started thinking about, oh, I'd really love to go back to school, get my degree and really like give back in some meaningful way. And that excited me. And, and so the first person I called was uh, John Bianco, who's our sports information director at Texas, who's still there. was there when I was in school and just one of my closest friends. And at first he was like, uh, are you OK? You know, he, he wasn't sure if I was if I was being serious or not. And then he realized I was and he was kind of in this weird spot where he wanted to be supportive. But it was like so surprising that he didn't know what to do. And so I, I called a couple of other friends and pretty much it was the same response. And so we're, in my mind, I imagined when I called my friends that they would be excited about it and, and they weren't. And so it started to get me to doubt, mm. to start doubting it a little bit. But I had in my mind, I had made up I was going to go. And so I started kind of going back and forth. Uh, and then the big the mistake that the mistake that I made was I was really good friends with Lenny Kravitz, personal assistant. And at the time they were in tour in, in Europe. And it was that window after OTAs before training camp, you know, that month, like that month yeah. and a half before. Which doesn't feel like a break. Right. Exactly. Dark and cloud. So, Everybody else is having fun. I'm like, you don't feel this cloud? It's training camp. <laughs> so, I'm telling you. So I was in, right? And so I was at, I was at, I was in Miami under that cloud. <laughs> Number one time to uh, impromptu retire, by the way, is July for a player. <laughs> So I was in I was in that cloud and she called me up and she's like she's like what are you doing I said oh we're you know we have a break and she was like why don't you come join us and I was like I can't and then I was like wait a minute mm. actually I can <laughs> so true so, so I got on they were in Zurich so I got on the next flight and met him in Zurich and then so I spent two weeks with him right and then I was like okay I could be doing this. Or I can go to training camp. <laughs> so that's the thing. I mean, the choice is clear. 
Yeah, it, it, it became quite clear, yes. I mean, and here's the funniest thing, and this is part of the reason, I, and this is a larger conversation about marijuana and that sort of thing, but a lot of people have classically framed it as you chose marijuana over football. Is that true? It's kind of true, but it's not true. It's, it's true symbolically of meaning I chose a life that was more me than trying to fit into a box of something that wasn't mm-hmm. You actually chose Lenny Kravitz's assistant over over football, but um, if you, <laughs> it's just incredible. If you ever write a yeah. book, there should yeah. be a chapter called Lenny Kravitz's assistant. Yeah, I yeah. can see it now. It, you're calling people. I'm so glad you said this because one of the things I was curious about with you is everybody was framing it like this guy's crazy because you were doing something that nobody does, and like, oh, this guy's got problems because he's doing something that goes against the grain, and it kind of it kind of made me think about if somebody calls me with some idea that I think is batshit crazy because it's against like societal norms, they're actually maybe not going through anything. They're actually onto something. And maybe like, has that, has your process kind of affected the way that when a buddy calls you and tells you something that seems crazy, like that, how you receive that to give advice then? I've always been like that. Like when when my, my friends or my family call me with a crazy idea, I'm usually proud of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> I'm, I'm usually proud of them. And then I'm like, okay, like I just want then I want to understand how they got there. And usually, you know, it makes sense. And I and and I look at things from a different perspective. But but yeah, because I've realized, you know, that my most rewarding decisions have been crazy, you know, where I, I trusted that crazy voice inside. Somebody has to tell me why not, dude. Like, yeah. hey, literally, you if you spell it out to me, if you can successfully illustrate to me why I shouldn't do this, then I'll listen. Yeah. But if you can't, if all you got is like, well, other people aren't doing it, then I'm not crazy, dude. Yeah. And I just think that was interesting because, you know, there was the there was certainly the the marijuana stuff, which again, like ahead of your time. I didn't I when when Dan Patrick asked me after I retired about yeah. marijuana, I didn't in, in saying, yeah, like I smoked my fair share of it. That was my own way on national radio of saying like, I fucking smoke every day, Dan. I smoked the man of the year here, okay? Okay, I've sm- so you can too, and you can be a man of the year too, and you can be a two-time super, like whatever, dude. I wasn't saying it's setting out to be an activist. Right. I was just being honest. I was living in my truth. And and like, I also, I also feel like a lot of people apply realities to your life because you use a plant like all of a sudden that's who you are it's not a part of your life like all of a sudden i had this identity you know and even the people that were supportive of me were getting on my nerves because they were like hey man let's let's meet up and smoke a doob and like you know like that's not my life like yes i like to get high but i'm i do a million other different things and i wonder if there was ever resentment with you when it came to people putting you in a box with that? Well, the resentment comes because I think it's overshadowed my actual football talent and what I actually did on the field. And that, that, you know, that bothers me because I think, like you said, most of the people that played with me or played against me will, will testify that I played hard, that I was, you know, a talented football player. And they knew when they played against me that, you know, it's going to be a long day. Right. And And to me, that's what matters is my peers, but, but again, I think it's unfortunate that the story of, of me as a football player sometimes gets overshadowed by the cannabis stuff. Yeah, that's how I feel about charity with me. There is something too like, hey, motherfucker, I was a 10,000 yard back. There's 30 
that ever walked the planet and I took time off and I still did that. If I'm you, that's my biggest ax I'm grinding is like, I got what I wanted, like that everybody sees me for me, but hey, don't forget, <laughs> I could tote the rock. Yeah. And that's how I felt about my skills. I mean, obviously I, I, you know, I never joined the 100 Sack Club, you know, maybe stuck around a while, but I do feel like at times I'm like, yeah, I know I'm like community service guy, but don't forget, I could play. Because, I, you know, I think it's hard for people to hold to hold both, right? It's hard for people to hold both. But for me, it's, it's a beautiful thing. People called you an addict. Joe Theismann said you were an addict when you went to play uh, in Canada. It's just, just incredible how far. Do you blame people in 2004 like that might be totally different now in 2021? Do you harbor any? I watch people that sounded like idiots talking about you who are respected journalists. I didn't blame anyone because I, I understood. I understood, you know, because part of me was feeling like the way that they were feeling about the whole thing. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I completely understood. But I also understood that I had to go on my own my own journey. How, how did marijuana, um, what slot in your life did that fill? Like why, why for you did you start using marijuana? And then like as an athlete, how was it beneficial to you? How is it beneficial to you today, Ricky, the 44-year-old dad? Yeah. So uh, I'd say I started really developing a relationship my senior year in college. Um, you know, I came back my senior year to to, to win the Heisman Trophy and uh, we started off the season kind of rough. I had a, like a really rough game against uh, Kansas State. I think I had like 12 carries for 43 yards. And that same week, I found out my girlfriend I just broke up with was with the quarterback was dating our quarterback. What? It, yeah. So I was like, yeah, it was a rough, it was a rough, it was a rough week. And about the and one my, that was playing. Yeah. It, I mean, I don't even, it was so bad. Okay. I don't want to go. Yeah. The, the other quarterback who was starting broke his thumb. Got and it. so then this other kid became the, the only quarterback we had. So he was the starter. And, you know, Jordan I don't get, know if I want to take this hand off from you, dude. <laughs> exactly. That, 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 it was, it was one of those, it was one of those years. Okay. So it was, it was rough. All right. And my roommate saw I was struggling and he was a smoker. So he was like, you know, he said, you need to just chill. And he said, here, and I'd smoked a couple of times, but I hadn't, you know, I hadn't really developed a relationship. And I, I remember I just took two hits from the bong and it was the first night I wasn't obsessing about the game or obsessing about my ex. And we went to Blockbuster and, and got blazing, watched blazing saddle. And I laughed my ass off. And, and I, you know, after that back to back 300 yard games. And so, <laughs> I realized there's okay. There's, there's something to this, you know? And I was kind of, I realized I was one of those, those guys that just takes things too seriously. Yeah. If I I just chilled out a little bit, that, that things would go better. And so it was really kind of the beginning of my adult spirituality of just realizing, okay, that there's, there's more going on, right. Than, than just, it's not just about me. Um, And, and so I think it felt good. It felt good to have to think bigger thoughts and to think outside of just football. And so I started to consume my free time using cannabis because I liked the mindset that it put me in. And, and, you know, I remember the, those times where I'd come home after, after practice and I'd smoke a little bit. Then I started reflecting on my life and thinking, you know, how can I be a better running back? How can I be a better father? How can I be a better boy? You know, just, and I really liked that. And it's something I wasn't getting I wasn't getting that quality of interaction in, in the football world. Uh, and eventually it got me to think about doing things other than playing football. And I think, you know, it, it led me to, 
eventually to to realize that I had an opportunity to do something else. And I and I was able to to, to make that choice in, in a my life would be so different if I didn't have that year off. I, I'd be a completely different person. It's so funny, because uh, I didn't start in like high school or anything like that. I didn't smoke till my freshman year. And my first time, I'll always remember it, there was a movie involved too. We were in Boise, Idaho for the that fucking bowl game up there with the blue turf. And me and my, and a couple teammates will go unnamed. We, uh, we just sat in the room and watched Bring It On. <laughs> <laughs> And I just remember thinking, my God, this movie's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I know the movie's not that good. Uh, but for me, there was a long break, though. To your point, like, I, I didn't have a relationship with it through college because I was so afraid of getting caught and losing my scholarship or whatever it was. Like, I knew how to stay out of trouble. That didn't, you know, didn't mean I pushed the limits. And I was a problem drinker. I was a college kid. So I was doing something else that I didn't realize that by the time you're 24, 25, it just doesn't fit you the same. Yeah. Um, and you fight it and you fight it, but it just doesn't fit you the same. And here I am, 36, I still like drinking beer. But I didn't start until I got in the league and I couldn't sleep. Like literally, that's it rescued me from probably addiction to sleeping pills. On, honestly, which so many people, I'm not saying it like I'm one of the only people in the world who have been addicted to sleeping pills, something to get to sleep at night, but you know, when you're chewing up Lunestas and you're doubling the dosage, it doesn't, it makes no sense. And I can remember my life changed the day I could start buying predictable, good weed, which was another plus. Like back when you were in college, like who the fuck knows where you're getting your bud from? Exactly. Exactly. Like by the time I was my eighth year in the league, we go for two day trips to Seattle. Like there are stores. Okay. Yeah. Like what kind do you want? Like, so things change for me. And, and I would say like just that, that feeling in July of, I don't have to stop because I'm worried about the one drug test, which is so arbitrary in camp. And I'm not going to go back to the sleeping pills or pain meds or that sort of thing. My life was so bad those three weeks every year. And just to get away from the game and be able to just be me, which includes that. Yeah. You know, you know it's nice. It's it's funny you say that. That's how I got that's how I got popped. Because when I was in New Orleans, it was every training camp. You know, the yeah. first couple of days of training camp, we get tested. And then I got traded to Miami and they tested OTAs. Yeah. And and no one no one told me until I showed that's up. That's a motherfucker, dude. Are you kidding me? Showed up. I showed up to work one day, and they're like, "Annual annual piss test." I was like, "Huh? For what? <laughs> you want to see if I'm hydrated?" <laughs> hey, dude! If they showed up, like I'd be in a panic. Like I'd be like, "You couldn't have told me I'd be done for the year." That's yeah. the biggest thing for people that don't understand is, and now the threshold is raised or it's lowered, so now it's easier. And essentially, now it's you know, um, but they would have a position group through the summer, like every time we got together, and they always. Like, I don't know about the running backs, but the DNs were always at the end. Yeah. It's like they made us wait. They just knew. They just knew we were the ones waiting. We were the main ones waiting, D linemen. So, <laughs> yeah. So we were just waiting and waiting, and they'd wait till like two weeks into training camp sometimes. And I'm like sitting there, the, I need you more now than ever. And I can't. Um, but, anyways, I, I just think it's interesting because it's not. It's not who you are, but as a part of your life. I wonder, have you ever like said to yourself, I'm abusing this stuff. I'm using it too much. 
There's been times. Yeah. There's definitely been times where I, where it's not, I wouldn't go that far, but I'd say, why am I doing this? You right. know, at least just, just check it in. Like, what am I, what am I doing this for? Cause you know, I think like anything, anything that makes you feel good can be abused. And I think just to, to be honest enough with yourself to check in, it's important. Yeah. Really look yourself in the mirror and be like, are you not like, are you not being productive right now because of something that you're enjoying a little too much of your mental health? I mean, that's something that like, you know, intertwines for me as somebody with anxiety, marijuana helps with that. As somebody certainly, you know, insomniac, marijuana helps with that. As you, I read you talk about, it was like almost, well, you go ahead. I'm not going to. Yeah. 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 Like I said, I walk into the locker room in new Orleans and I just was like, I didn't want to be there. And I just felt so anxious and uncomfortable around my teammates, you know, and even worse meeting fans. And I think a lot of it was I just was hurt. I was hurt the whole time. And so my identity as being the best football player was completely taken away. And so I didn't want to be around. And I remember watching uh, watching television and there's a commercial for Paxil. You know, they do those, those yeah. uh, pharmaceutical commercials and then they list all the symptoms. Oh, boy. And I saw the symptoms and I was like, holy shit, that's me. You know, and so I called I called my friend and I said, I, I think I need to talk to I need, I think I need to talk to a therapist. And so she hooked me up and I started I started talking to this woman and pretty quickly she was like, yeah, you know, I think you could benefit from Paxil. And I, this is called social anxiety disorder. And for me, like my, my my warrior mind went to, OK, I know what it is. I can like I could deal with this. And from that point on, I just started working on myself and realizing what I came to realize is that I'm just a sensitive person. And as long as I understand that and I come to terms with that, then it doesn't have to turn into anxiety. When you left for a year, you went to Australia right away? I went to Australia, yep. Was there a moment in your travels, because you were all over the place out there, where you just sat there on a beach or something or at a coffee shop and you were like, I'm finally alone? Ah, there was, there was, there were a couple moments. So. I had a moment in uh in Australia. And when I when I so after I retired, Dan Lebetard um was writing for ESPN magazine yeah. and uh and Miami Herald. And him and I were best friend, best friends. And so when I retired, he wrote like these really glowing pieces about how proud he was of me, you know, being the athlete to walk away and, and all that great stuff. Okay. And it was a, it was a cool story, right? And I was like, all right, this is, you know, it's going over, it's going over well. And one night, Dan and I were, were on the phone and we had talked about one day writing a book together, you know, and I said, and I, we were talking on the phone that night and I said, you know, when we write the book together later, it'll be interesting to, to talk about the drug test. And Dan said, what drug test? Mm. <laughs> and I said, you know, I said, before I retired, I failed a drug test and I called the NFL and retired. And he said, what do you mean? And he started to get like really anxious and I, and I didn't understand what was going on. And he's like, I have to write this. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, we're best friends and we're having a conversation. And, and what do you mean you're going to write this? He's like, he it, said, it, it's ethically, I have this information and I'm part of the media. I, I have to write this. And I was thinking to myself, like, no way. Right. And so we get off the phone and sure enough, wake, <laughs> wake up the next morning and the and the legend of Ricky and cannabis begins. Okay, it begins, um, and so that you know that's that's kind of how it all that's kind of how it all got started. Golly! So then, so then, you escape, you get out of Dodge, and so and so and so when this happens, 
you know, it was, first it was going over like smooth and then this hits and that's what all the story of pothead Ricky, you know, mm-hmm. quits. So everywhere on the media, like it's, it's all that I'm seeing, you know? And so I'm kind of like, all right, I really don't want to go. <laughs> I really want to go out now. And of course my friend calls and she says, you know, I'm going to Samoa next week. Would you like to come? And I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. So we, we went to Samoa and then from Samoa, uh, we went to Fiji we're in Fiji and I, and I was like, you know, Australia is just two hours away and I really love that place. And so I said, I'm going to go back. There's this lighthouse in this town called Byron Bay on the east coast of, uh, of Australia. So I flew to Sydney, took a Greyhound to Byron Bay and thought I'd be there for a weekend photographing this lighthouse. Ended up staying there for a month and a half. And, you know, about, about a month in, I met this guy who lived in the, who lived in the swamp, this guy named Steve. And he was like straight out of a central casting, you know, just a very earthy guy who just loved plants, you know, and he even had a couple of cannabis plants, most sweetest, most beautiful cannabis I ever, ever really? saw. This guy was like, he had this gift with just growing things, you know, like the, he grew these papayas that were like twice the size of normal papayas. And he would, and he, so he just knew all the indigenous plants. And so every day we would walk. And he would just talk to me about the history of the plant and the history of Australia. And I think just with him and that relationship, I just found a, a place of, of peace. And, you know, I grew up a very religious person. And one of the things that Stephen had, he had a Bible. And he said, here, I want you to, like, read this. And I was like, sure. And so I remember I started reading the gospel. And I came across this passage in Matthew. And it said, basically, if you leave home and family and all all that stuff in in search of me, it'll all be given back to you a hundredfold. Right. Okay. And and that in that moment, I had that that sense of peace that I, I knew I was I knew that as crazy as everything was, I knew I was at the, exactly at the right the right place, the right time where I was supposed to be and, and doing exactly what I needed. One of the hardest things about faith to me, I'm glad you brought that up, is like you've seen everything like you've seen i feel like every corner of the world as much as you could and you know as you meet people everybody believes in something different so like how do you choose one you know what i mean and and somebody's got to be right which means everybody else has to be wrong like that's why i don't buy into organized i mean like i'm i, I believe in a higher power i'm i'm faithful but it is really hard for me to talk to a preacher who says a kid in east africa is going to hell because they didn't accept the word of God, you know, because they're Muslim and their parents raised the Muslim and vice versa. And it's just the way we, I don't know what you make of faith at this juncture in your life. Well, I think all the, if you really read closely, all the religions say faith has to be something that has to be tested, right? right? That the only thing that you can truly know and believe in is what you've experienced. So all the scriptures say, you know, take, take what your parents teach you or what society teaches you and test it out for yourself and and i think that's how you develop faith Uh, and i think that especially in this day and age i think you know i think we need religion but not organized religion when i say religion i mean the practice of whatever we believe in you know and i think we have to believe in something and and do our best to to live according to those to those beliefs and that's why i love astrology because it gives everyone their own personalized religion yeah. That's so interesting. I and I'm and I'm just starting that journey, Ricky. Uh, the, the 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 Gemini Moon, the twelfth house is the giving 12th house. Twelfth house, giving house. 
is the is the sacrifice the house there you go i remember see you you were looking at me during that podcast like he he's just not <laughs> motherfucker i listened the whole thing hey when it came to Steve and, you know, like when I watched Run Ricky Run, those guys you met in Nevada City, which you got to yeah. tell me how you picked Nevada City. Yeah. Like, yeah. you seem to gravitate to some people that don't need anything from you. Why is that? I mean, it sounds obvious, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people gravitate to, towards people that are dependent on them. Yeah. You know, I, you know how it is. Like when, you know, being a professional athlete, like we we become very sensitive to people that are are that want something from us, and so for me it just became a thing when that was not there, it just felt better, and so I would gravitate gravitate towards that because, you know, when someone wants something from you, they've already decided who you are and what you have to offer. And right. for me, like what I was as an athlete was great, but it was it wasn't what I, I had have so much more to offer, and so I, I just would gravitate to those people that could see something else see something else in me something deeper in me that that i'm that i was trying to find and i, I was trying to bring to the surface it was just so funny it was the funniest pairing of dudes in nevada city they, they run ricky run if you've seen it they're they're interviewing these guys and i'm sure like there was a moment where you meet these random cats and for the people that that uh haven't seen it i guess ricky the first place you came back to when you left your world tour in 2004 yeah. you end yeah. up in nevada city california and there's a bunch of dudes that just are regular as hell, just normal guys, you know, football fans, obviously, uh, you know, but they just weren't, they seemed to accept you as a normal dude. And, and that's what you would play poker with these guys. What else would you do with these dudes? So, yeah. So the, the way I got to Nevada City was uh, when I was in Australia, I wanted to buy a big chunk of land. But, you know, the price of the land, they have laws where I had to become a uh, a resident of Australia. So I went to the immigration office and talked to the attorney and they gave me the paperwork to apply for citizenship. So I went home, started filling out the paperwork. Mm -hmm. They had this page at the very, at the very end that basically was like, what's your skill? What are you going to do when you like come here? And so I started going down this long list of occupations, you know, and I got to the bottom and I was like, damn, <laughs> I don't have a skill. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I need to go to trade school. Exactly. That's exactly. Exactly. And so I started thinking, what do I want to learn? And uh, and I this, when I was traveling, this guy gave me this book on something called Ayurveda and it just blew my mind. And so I thought I want to study that stuff. And so I looked online to see if there are any schools in the U.S. that that train people in Ayurveda. And I found that there was a school. The, like the semester started in a week and a half and it right. was in this town called grass grass valley and so i drove up there that next day to enroll and it was like i drove into into the town and it was it was october so the leaves were changing colors and it was just like this beautiful like idyllic place and i was like i, I didn't even know places like this existed there's a, a old uh, gold mining town. Yeah. Okay? And, and so I enroll in school and I started taking classes there and found this cute little cottage. I, I love that place. And so about a week into to living there, I had to go to Radio Shack to get something for my computer. Uh, I remember Radio Shack. Yeah, yeah my it's, dad was in some of those fucking commercials. Yes, you were like, sure you were in your Nevada city, which by the way, that little house looks so chill. Like, yeah, you know that that feeling when you just feel like I I was watching and I was like, damn, that place looks amazing. It was. What right? you have a Jeep outside? Was that a Jeep? I had a Jeep. I had a Jeep and a Hummer. Yeah, it was dope. Yeah, it was it was awesome. And so about a weekend, I went to Radio Shack and the, got Charlie was my my buddy. Yeah, he was looking at Radio Shack and and I was like getting something for my computer and he walked up to me. He was like, 
I think I know who you are. And I was like, okay. And he was like, he's like, you're pretty cool. And I was like, all right, thanks. So then I, I paid for the, for the stuff and I walked outside to my car and he comes running in after me and he taps me on the shoulder and he gives me, you know, those old, those old film containers. Yeah. And he hands it to me and I'm like, okay. And I open it and there's like two buds in there. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, okay. I was like, all right, cool. And he's like, I was like, this place is kind of cool. <laughs> And so a day later, I, I took my Hummer down. There's a, a river in, in Nevada City. And I took my Hummer down this off-road, awesome track down to the river. And as I was coming back up, there was this guy on his bike and he was stuck in the mud. So I got out and I helped him. I threw his back his bike in the back of the Hummer and took him to the top of the hill. And he, he said, thank you, man. And he reached out and he like put his hand out. And there's a couple of nugs. And I was like... <laughs> I like this town and I didn't know, but you know, that, that area Nevada County is one of the, you know, the biggest cannabis growing counties in, in all of California. I feel like that's like in murder mountain area. Yes, it is. And in the town, the next town over was grass Valley. Right. And who knew that they ended up in this this town where I actually become a hero when people find out I'm there and people literally are just giving me pounds of cannabis, you know, just just (laughs) good, good, good bud too. Yes. Presumably. Yeah, it was great. It was it was it was great. And so it just was it was just cool to leave the NFL and within six months find myself in this like place where I was celebrated and appreciated for. for and then you find time. yourself back in a locker room. And does it feel like the first day you're back? Is it like you woke up from a good dream or um you know, to, to be honest, like we're warriors, right? And yeah. we have to we we do need time to get away and to relax, but that fire burns. And the truth is, I was I wouldn't say I was getting bored, but I knew I needed to eat, right? I needed that break to heal and to recover and to find myself. But I also had this feeling that the way I left, I needed to come back and do and and, and do it better, you know? I needed I needed to get my name right if I wanted to have the kind of life that I wanted to have. So I approached it as a mission, as a, like almost as even like a spiritual mission. That I'm gonna go back and see if I can finish this and, and walk away on my own terms. Can you remember a veteran or a player, because you're a vet at this time, who kind of was an asshole to you when you came back? You don't have to name names. But were there guys that were just like, dude, like you're not serious about this like we are? There was one guy, and I'll I'll name him because because we we you know we we squashed it. Um, but Jay Feely, you know. Really? Yeah. Yeah. A kicker? No offense. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say a fucking kicker, but, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, I'll say it. A fucking kicker was giving you shit about, like, <laughs> abandoning the battlefield. Yes, yeah. No but we, we, you know, we, we squashed it, and we, and we were, once he got to know who I was, like, got to know me. Because he wasn't there. He wasn't there when I left. He was, he just came after I left. And so, you know, we, we got to know each other, and we were we were cool. But dudes, I, you know, like, I wanted to, I think Jason Taylor was talking about you, and, like, probably felt good to hear some dudes who were, like, legit OGs and guys that you might have looked up to approving of your journey. Yes. It felt wonderful. And in it cuz deep down inside the guys they they understood, you know. And I, I think that the biggest the biggest thing for me was after that when I came back, I I wasn't trying to be someone else anymore. Like people already knew that I was different. And so I felt free just to be myself. And because of that, I think the rest of my career was it was so much more fun. It's amazing. You spend all this time worrying about what other people think about you, and it turns out they don't give a fuck. So you might as well make yourself happy and and look in the mirror and be like, "Oh yeah, I like this guy." Yeah. Like it's this is a day you just wake up one day. But the the truth is, even in, even if they do give a fuck and write stories about it, that stuff blows over and everyone forgets. 
know? Exactly. That's my thing. I told my brother this because the other day, because of his injury, I was like, listen, whenever you know, whenever you finish up, you're going to realize that all these criticisms and the praise alike, when you move to whatever sleepy town you move to, and when you go do your radio gig or your podcast like me, when you're washed up like I am on this side of it, like you realize how quickly people move on. Yeah. And good and bad. So why are you spending any time worried about what people are thinking of you bad? Like, so I, I just, it, it, and another thing that was interesting, we were talking on your pod about was I could sense it. And I was mentioning how relieved I felt like my, and here I am preaching about self-acceptance and I couldn't accept myself for 10 years in the league until I won a Super Bowl. Like a, not the first one, the second one. Okay. Like how much work do you think I had to do to feel good about my career? But like, you know but that year you I guess it was 2009 and it just felt like the tone of run Ricky run it was like it was like I'm good now dude yeah to come to come back and and to to rush for a thousand yards you know while I split time most of that year it was redemption it was the same year that run Ricky run came out so it was just it was one of those special I was the team MVP it was one of those special years you know those that a year of redemption where I felt like, okay. And and that's when the Dolphins dropped the lawsuit against me because I had come back and, and I accomplished my goal and made it, made it right. Do you think you get along with the, the Ricky Williams in that doc? Yeah, I do. Cause I, I think I would have pushed him, you know, I, I think, I think I would have pushed him and I think he would have appreciated it. And I, I think that's one of the things that I learned about myself is I, I love, I love to be pushed. Yeah. You gotta be probably. I mean, you just, it's like you need it. We were talking about uh, how you need to be curious and you need to like be active and that sort of thing, but you also need to have something to wake up to yeah. every day, like, like I, something I to have, answer to. That's what I loved about football because it was one of those things where every day going on that field, there was an opportunity to get better. You know, it was a, it was a requirement to get better. You know, a lot of guys didn't, didn't step up to it, but I loved it. I loved it. And every day I walked out there, I asked myself, okay, one way, like how can I get better in one way today? In 2011, you out of in Baltimore. This is the tail end of your career. You've got Cam Cameron up there as your OC. <laughs> Do y'all get along? Well, I mean, he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. I'm trying to okay, say nice things. He's, no, a nice it's, it's, he's a nice guy. And so I'll, I'll be honest, he's a nice guy. So he's easy to get a, along with. But he's also one of those coaches that's full of shit, you know? <laughs> And, and, and you mean seventy like, percent of coaches? No offense to coaches, they probably tell you seventy percent of players actually can't play. Well, I'm telling yes. you, seventy percent of coaches are making shit up sometimes. Yes, yes. Like that's what I loved about Nick Saban. Like he, people might say he's a prick, but he, you knew exactly what he was telling you was the truth. That's the same way I feel about Bill. Yeah, getting to play for him for a year. You know, like I played for a lot of coaches, and actually, you played for more than me. I did the whole list. I was going to make you see if you could name them all. <laughs> But, I, you know, like, that's the thing is you don't realize how much you appreciate the coach that shot you straight until you're done. You know, when you're in it, you want, you want a buddy. You know, you want a buddy. It's not that you're willing to take a, a mile when they give you an inch, but you want any, like, safe harbor you can get. It's a really tumultuous time. But then you walk away and you're like, I really appreciate that coach that was an asshole to me sometimes, as long as he was telling me the truth. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So because Cam, me, did Cam lie to you before you went to Baltimore? He told you you'd play and then. Well, you know, that, that whole situation. No, it, it just was <clears throat> a situation where 
Ray Rice. Ray Rice was the was the starting running back when I when I signed with with Baltimore, and I was used to splitting time. Ronnie and I split time, uh, and when we got there, you know. Harbaugh was the kind of guy where he put the whole offense on Cam. And so I would talk to Cam and Cam would say, okay, yeah, we're going to find ways to get you involved in the game plan. Because to me, it's not necessarily touches, but at a vet, I need to be involved in the game plan. Like I, even if it's like, you know, short yardage and, a, and some goal line stuff or a couple of plays on third down, just put something. So I know that like I have a role, you know, this idea of where it turned into whenever Ray got tired, then I would go and, go in the game and that's not what we that's not what we talked about and then when as we went through the season and tried to address it he would say he would address it but then Ray just would go up to him I'd have a couple good good runs and Ray would go up to him and then you know he put Ray back in the game so I just didn't like I like coaches who who see what's best for the whole team and don't kowtow to certain to certain players did you have a couple years left in you think physically I could have played two more years yeah I could have played two more years and as you're sitting on the sideline with the camera, are you like, damn, I just missed it by a year, you know? So when I decided to retire, I knew the, I knew the Ravens were going to go. I knew the you Ravens knew were going to I knew they were going to the Super Bowl. I knew it. Because there were certain things that I experienced in Baltimore that I never experienced anywhere else. Remember the, the, first, the first preseason, second preseason game that we played when I got there, we were playing against, at the time, the Redskins. And, and like, we we. They punted and we our, our our returner muffed the punt. Okay. Right. Nobody on the defense put their head down. Nobody had a look. They just got up and ran on the field. And I was like, wow. Like <laughs> I, I haven't been around a team that where when things go bad like that, that they don't That's put their head deal. down. And it was uh, and you know, and they had a saying, uh, no hand claps and no butt slaps. Meaning if you make a mistake, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, just keep it moving. Okay. That was that was the first thing where I was like, okay, this 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 team is special. And the second was uh, we lost to the Patriots in the AFC Divisional Championship game. Uh, Billy Cundiff missed like a 20-yard field goal that would have sent us into overtime after Lee Evans dropped a touchdown pass. Kickers, okay. man, no offense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so okay. And so this is you know hour after the game, we're on the bus after you know. Billy just missed a field goal and Billy's sitting like next to me right here. And I'm just feeling bad for the guy. Yeah. The rest of the team starts to come on the bus. Okay. Before the bus takes off, the guys are already talking about coming back and getting after it next year. I knew with that attitude, I knew that this team was, I knew this team was going to the Super Bowl. I knew it. And so I, I was, I, I was at peace with that. You know, I was at peace with that. And I think, and I think maybe you can you can speak to this a little bit. I think one of the hardest things to do for a veteran sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes is is change teams, you know, because there, yeah. there's a certain level of respect, you know, and when you're at a place for a certain one, there, there's a certain level of respect that's allotted to you and people know you and they appreciate things about you. And then when you're older, having to go somewhere else and have to prove yourself again, especially for me, when there's guy like a really good running back Ray Rice in, in front of me and you know it was funny after when I called uh, John Harbaugh to retire he said you know I think one of the biggest mistakes we made this year was not getting you more involved and one of our biggest conversations we've had is how to get you more involved in, in the offense next year and I said that's great you know but I was just was at a point where there are so many other things that I wanted to do that it, it just couldn't justify sitting on the bench and dealing with that for another year and it's so true though you you, you nailed it because I told my, again, telling my little brother, giving him advice when he's changing teams, I'm like, dude, just be ready for the fact that you're going to feel disrespected a lot. 
And it's not like the disrespect where like earlier in your career, like you can take disrespect and spin it because you got 70 snaps. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> if I get disrespected, I take it out on somebody. You get disrespected and they're like, all right, you got 12 plays or something. You know, you, you get your little third, you know, you get your little short yardage or, so yeah. what do you, what do you, like the first day I'm in Philly, they put me on the, the rookie field, dude. I got s more sacks than anybody in the building. I say this all the time. I'm like, that is, that illustrates to you what it's like being a vet. Yeah. Like, and, and if you can't handle that, you shouldn't stick it out and bounce from team to team. And I got to tell you, it's just me being real. I could not handle it. I yeah. couldn't handle being disrespected and not having an outlet. Glad you said it. Yeah, that's real talk. I mean, and that, that was part of the reason I retired. Part of it was being fed up, but yeah. and just like, hey, I'm 33. I've done everything I want to do, dude. Like, do I want to be walking around like my dad? But part of it was like, you know what? Fuck this, dude. I just, I, the little things, you know what I mean? And they add up. And I wonder if Baltimore felt a lot the same way. Yeah, but I'm telling you, for me, the last draw was we were playing, I think we were playing Cleveland. And it was, it was like four minute offense, right? It was cold, and Ray and Ray came up to me. He was like, "All right, you go in now." I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I, looked, "I looked at our, I looked at our running back coach Wilbur." Wilbur looked at Ray and was like, "Get your ass back in the game!" You oh, know? bro, when they put you in, in four minute on defense at the end of a game, I'm like, I don't mind because I'll, I, I, I kind of missed taking the anger out like on first and yeah. second now because they made me this like situational guy. But you're like. Yeah. You kind of look at him with the ultimate side eye, dude. Or like if you'd be out there too late in a preseason game, bro. I remember my last season, my last season in St. Louis, and this was my people, dude. I had been on IR for a year and a half. I was just on IR one year, bro. I could tell they were ready to cut me. They had me in the fourth quarter of the third preseason game, bro. I'm making plays, getting up, screaming. I'm screaming at the coaches, not like excited to make the play. It fucking sucks, dude, getting old in the NFL. Yes, yeah, and it exactly. makes you feel old, and I and and I think one of the reasons guys really struggle after football is it is reinforced to you over and over again at the tail end of your career that you are scrap metal. I think the way you get out is so important to your confidence and what you do next. So important, and just you know, like how positive you can be, because if you, I am still grinding axes from when I played, and I had this storybook career in a lot of ways, and I'm saying that like trying to be positive. I'm not saying I'm anything special, but. Like a lot of people would say, Chris, man, golly, dude, look at all the things you did. Ricky, look at all the things you did. But I know me personally, I'm still grinding axes. And I went out on my own. I went out the one, you know, older guys will tell you, you can only leave the game in a couple ways. It's on their terms, you know, because your body broke or because you got out on your terms. And like so few people do that. So there is something to, if you can walk away on the third way, like you're going to be a healthier person because you're not going to be as spiteful. Exactly. So true. I, I think that's probably the most underestimated thing. And, and when I came back, I told myself my goal is to have an indefinite NFL career that I get to choose. I get to choose when I walk away. And uh, I think it, it saved my confidence because I think it hurts when you want to keep doing something and they tell you no. And the game, you feel like it's a whole thing of like, how much can I use the game? They think I'm using me, but I'm using the game. Yep. You know, was, and and in the end, they're using you, but like you can kind of spin it in your head. Last couple questions here, Rick, and then I'll get you out of here, buddy. The future, like you're 44 years old. I, I assume you feel pretty good, like the head trauma stuff. You played the most physical position when it comes to this stuff. I mean, like I worry about my buddies that, you know, like my buddy Steven Jackson. I'm like, I watched him tote the rock like 40 times a game in obscurity. I'm like, are you afraid of that kind of 
possible ticking time bomb that everybody counts as like, hey, when you leave the game, you heard these horror stories. This is what's going to happen to you eventually. You know, I think I've 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 come to terms. I've come to peace with it. You know, and I think I think the advantage of coming to peace with it is I won't be in denial. So I'll be present with it as it if it occurs as it occurs. But you know, and I think what we did is a you know it was an intense thing, and and yeah, we did damage to our body. But I've done a lot to do everything I can to to take care of my body, and so if I go down that that route, I'm, you know, hopefully I I do it with dignity. You know, and, and, yeah. and, the, yeah. and the, the, the joke I told my kids, like, is if. Oh, boy, here comes something morbid as fuck. The joke I, I told my kid is, is just, you know, is just keep telling me, I, I, I you know, that I, I took my medicine already. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, listen, I think via, you got to be able to laugh a little bit about your own circumstance. That doesn't mean you're taking the whole thing lightly. But another thing is like, if you spend all day believing that it's a certainty, it becomes, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm not saying that like, but if you think you're losing your mind or you're supposed to, that can hang over guys' heads. And they they make it worse, you know? And I think part, part of aging is that I, I think part of aging is that you lose your memory because you realize certain things just aren't that important anymore. Selective. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think it's healthy <laughs> to lose your memory to a certain extent as you get older. That's that's what you earn. We earn the right. We earn the right to lose a little bit of our memory. Exactly. <laughs> What's on your bucket list? And do you ever get frustrated that you probably can't do it all? And you said you're halfway, 88 years. Yeah. So my bucket list, and I think I'm going to do this in the next year or so, but is really spend more time in Africa. You know. Come with me, dude. Let's go to let's go to Tanzania. Come climb Kilimanjaro with me. Don't say yeah. no. I'm, I'm not. I mean, if I'm saying this, like, how, <laughs> how can I? How can I? Yeah, that, that's really my. All right. And I need time, you know, time, and really like just just connect, just connect to the to the homeland. It's really, I feel really drawn to to do that. Awesome, man. Well, Ricky, we got. I think we could talk another six hours. So I'll get you back here another time, man. Uh, Please. Yeah, dude. A lot of fun. And check out Ricky's podcast. Give us one more plug for the pod, man. Yeah. Curious questions with me, Ricky Williams. Check it out. And hopefully I'll get him up on the mountain now. I feel like we might we might have something in the works here. So Ricky yeah. Williams, a lot of, lot of respect, bro. Thanks for uh, for kind of paving the way for guys that just say what they feel. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying what you feel. I think that interview with, with Dan Patrick was was a big deal. Do a little bit we can, man. Thank you, bro. Yeah.